Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to reintroduce to you now. Steve Cutler is a returning guest on our show. Be sure to check out our first interview with Steve on episode 222 of Boundless Body Radio. As a coach and consultant, Steve Cutler has helped hundreds of people and businesses improve processes and protocols that have led to skyrocketing performance. With over 20 years in health, fitness, tech, and entrepreneurial ventures, Steve brings a strong background in operations, marketing, sales, and financial performance. Steve is the owner of Evolve, a lifestyle clothing, coaching, and consulting business. Steve is the host of the very successful Evolve podcast that he hosts with our mutual friend, W. Miles Riley. In addition to Evolve, Steve is currently a vice president for Udo, a tech startup company in Utah Silicon Slopes. Most important, Steve is a proud husband and father of three beautiful, smart, and amazing kids. Steve has had a massive impact on my personal and professional life. He believed in me enough to hire me and help me own and embrace my unique area of passion in the low carbohydrate and ketogenic space. And it is an honor to welcome him back to Balanced Body Radio. Steve Cutler, my good friend, welcome back. Thanks for having me back on. Always Absolutely. great to chat with you. Always great to chat with you. We, I, it was really fun to go back and listen to our original episode that you and I recorded on our show. I've been on your show a few times. We always just have great chats. It's kind of nice to walk into this interview having not done as much normal prep <laughs> that I do with most of my interviews because I know you so well. I know um, everything that you've kind of gone through, especially in the last year or two, and I know we're going to have a great chat. So really looking forward to this. Yeah, so am I. That's great. It'll be a lot of fun. I know that some of your favorite words to use on your Evolve podcast is not only evolve and evolution, but also disrupt. And you had a major life disruption this last year that I want to talk about and get into with you if you're willing to talk about it. But before we do, I want to go back. Can you tell us a little bit about how you first got interested in health and fitness to begin with? Oh gosh, health and fitness is something that's always been an interest or a passion of mine as, as long as I can remember. I think back to when I was a kid and I always loved getting uh, outside, whether it was playing basketball or as I got into my teenage years, I spent a lot of time outdoors, hiking, uh, rock climbing. In fact, I remember one year after getting into rock climbing without gear, uh, mind you, uh, my friends and I would go out and we'd find these little crags uh, behind our house who grew up in the mountains of Utah. And after falling several times on my back and getting scraped up and hurt, I went back home and told my parents that I uh, wanted some climbing equipment for my uh, birthday or Christmas. I think it was for my birthday. They said no. Um, I used my uh, great cells and persuasion techniques uh, or maybe it was manipulation back then. And I said, look, I'm going to keep doing this. So if you want me to stay uh, alive and healthy, uh, that might be the best thing for my birthday. So uh, they conceded, got me some climbing equipment and uh, started a uh, another lifelong passion for me of uh, getting outside and just spending time in outdoors. So I can't really pinpoint where it started, uh, but I have been in love with health and fitness for a lot of years. And I'm also an artist. Uh, I love to draw and paint. And so the idea of sculpting a physique has always been something that's been fascinating to me. And so uh, health and fitness really combines everything I'm passionate about, uh, business, coaching people, uh, the artistic aspect of it, and then the scientific piece as well, uh, because there's a lot of science behind what we do in the health and fitness space. Yeah, absolutely. How does the saying go? If you're going to be dumb, you have to be tough. Is it something like that? Thank you. Yeah. Yes, that, uh, I, I am dumb. And I'm not sure if I'm tough, but <laughs> I'm definitely tough. dumb. 
<laughs> Way to stick with the rock climbing. That's so awesome. You also competed in a bodybuilding contest as well. So not only were you interested in the outdoors, but also in your own personal physique. And, and yeah, what was that experience like? So that was pretty fascinating. You know, I was always a skinny kid growing up and I, I'm obviously not a big guy now, but I was fascinated to say to myself, okay, what would it look like if naturally I could build a physique that uh, was both artistic and strong and that I could be proud of? And so uh, I went out and I think like many things, I want to learn from some of the best that are out there because if I can get a shortcut to a better path, I would much rather do that. And so um, I was pretty persistent. And I reached out to some key people uh, that uh, historically had done well in bodybuilding. In fact, uh, I had an opportunity to train with the very first ever Mr. Olympia, uh, Larry Scott, who became a good friend of mine. Um, and he, he showed me some things. We trained together a little bit. Uh, I had a chance to train with uh, three-time Mr. Olympia, Frank Zane who many people believe was probably one of the most aesthetic physiques in the bodybuilding world. And this is before all the mass monsters, the people who were, you know, just extremely huge. I uh, learned some great things there. And then one of my early mentors, uh, Ron Williams, who was a multiple time natural Mr. Olympia. Uh, and from these uh, three people in particular, I was able to uh, develop uh, what I think was a fairly aesthetic and athletic physique and it was fun. I, I always said, I'll give it a try one time. I don't know that putting on little tiny shorts and standing oiled up and flexing is my thing. Uh, while I love the um, aesthetic piece of lifting weights, I don't know that standing on stage was really the thing for me. So uh, I did it and, you know, uh, took my division and then I placed the third overall. Uh, and God, that was probably, I don't know, 16, 17 years ago. And haven't really stepped on stage since, and I'm not sure that I ever will. Uh, but yeah, it was a great experience, and it really taught me a lot about pushing boundaries, uh, more so mentally than physically, because there were some things that uh, were happening in my life at the time where I could have thrown the towel in and just said, I, I can't do this bodybuilding show. Uh, but that was uh, certainly a time where I learned the value of just sticking through and, uh, you know, that you can, you can still lift heavy weights, even if you had one or two hours of sleep the night before, because of, uh, some other challenges in life. Yeah, for sure. I don't think many people who see a bodybuilding competition really appreciate how much work and time goes into that. Um, you know, somebody that's your body type that tends to be outside more is naturally kind of lean. Mm. Sometimes can be a little bit taller. They tend more towards like endurance sport and the metabolic rates just tend to be a little bit on the high side for that person to gain muscle. It takes years and years and years of work. Yeah. And so, yeah, I hope it's something you look back on now and are really proud of having gone through it, even though it's not something you're going to continue doing. Yeah, I think so. And I still, I still bodybuild to a certain degree. I mean, I still am training to, uh, you know, for an aesthetic and to be athletic so that I can move around. And, you know, I want to be the guy I'm 46 now. And so when I'm uh, 86, I still want to be able to walk on a beach and have people uh, say, Hey, that, that, that old dude is pretty ripped up. Um, and not just, you know, lean and rip, but that I have a certain amount of muscle. And so, um, yeah, I, I love doing it for the aesthetic part. That's my artistic side. But I absolutely love just being able to do the things I want to do. You know, like yesterday, for instance, my uh, two of my kids came to the gym with me and I'm teaching them how to do uh, chin-ups and we were lifting together and teaching my son the basics of a bench press and how to get more drive. 
uh, as he's uh, as he's benching. And that's one of the greatest things in life for me is being able to be athletic and do things with my kids who at this point are now in their teens and 20s. That's amazing. Yeah, I love that. And I love that mentality of all of us are bodybuilders. I feel like that gets really misunderstood when I tell that to people, but we all are, we all should be concerned about our bodies and we need to be building up our bodies to be strong and resilient so that we can have that kind of a life that you're describing. I want to be, you know, fit and healthy well into my eighties and nineties. And so many people in our world in the health world really can pull that off. If they're following the right advice, they get to that point where it doesn't look like they're aging. Their skin looks great. Their, their muscle tone looks great. Like they're able to do all of these different movements that so, so, so many people have lost the ability to do decades ago. Yeah. Well, I I think you bring up a great point and muscle is just such a critical part to our aging uh, and to staying healthy. You know, it's, um, I I will say I don't recover the same as I used to. And so I have to change my workouts up uh, more often than when I was younger, but just having more muscle and strength training on a regular basis, uh, I feel better at 46 than I did probably even at 26. I mean, I just, I've got more energy. I've got more strength. Um, I can do pull-ups with more weight around my waist. I can squat more. I can, um, you know, there's just a lot more that I can do now than I uh, could do 20 years ago. And so I, I think that, uh, you know, when you look at people and you you judge how old they are, uh, there are a few indicators and a few markers, and one of them is is uh, my hairline. That's receding, but I think if you look at the rest of me, um, I don't know that I feel like I'm aging, but uh, a lot of people that I run into that I haven't seen for years, where maybe they've gained 20, 30, 40, 50 pounds, they, they definitely look older and I think move um, as if they're older. So muscle and mobility and the ability to keep the joints and uh, soft tissue healthy is just critical to to our aging process. Yeah. One of our recent guests, uh, Amy, just turned 68 years old and all the people around her are like complaining about aches and pains and like, oh, I, it, it's just the worst, isn't it? To have aches and pains. And she's like, uh, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I don't experience that. And that's what's possible. And it's so cool to have examples like yours and other people out there who do feel like they are um, reverse aging. I think it's wonderful. We we mentioned already that disruption and we're going to get to that. But before we do, cue us up a little bit on the history of your diet. Clearly, you know, standing on stage requires a lot of work, not only in the gym, but also in the kitchen. You have to really get your, you know, your macronutrients dialed in. And tell us how your understanding of nutrition has evolved from that time being in the fitness world and getting on stage, what looks to us like peak physical form and how that's kind of changed over time. Yeah. Um, and I would say even go back further, you know, uh, when I was a kid, I grew up in the eighties and, uh, so healthy back then meant low fat. And so, uh, there were a lot of, you know, if I was eating a whole grain bread, that was considered super healthy when I grew up. Um, I would eat low fat pop tarts. I would eat uh, toaster strudels. I would eat ego waffles. I mean, there were so many things that back then we thought were healthy, uh, because that was what was being told to us, you know, eat this food, food guide, eat the pyramid. Um, and so whole grains or anything with grains, uh, get a few fruits and vegetables in here or there, limit your dairy, limit your meat, uh, sparingly. And so that's what I did. And, you know, I had age on my side. I had a, uh, what they call an ectomorphic physique. My, my, uh, physique is one where I tend to not be very, uh, not put on body fat, uh, very easily when I was younger. And so I could eat, uh, like that. And, and it didn't really make much of a difference. In fact, I, I joke now, uh, that when I was younger and I would go rock climbing, 
I would, I worked at a pizza restaurant and I would have one of my friends who was going to uh, the university that was right down, uh, right up the hill from the pizza restaurant. He would show up around noon and uh, grab a pizza and sit down and do some homework. And I was off by one or two o'clock. And after eating, you know, I don't know how much pizza and downing how many uh, Mountain Dews and Dr. Peppers, we'd hop in the car and go uh, stop by the 7-Eleven, get a couple of chocolate donuts and more Dr. Pepper and drive up the canyon to go uh, climb. And I could get away with that and still look lean and feel okay. But that was a healthy diet back then. And not the donuts and the soft drinks, obviously, but anything that was low fat was considered healthy. So as I decided that I wanted to start building muscle, I got into uh, learning a lot more about what would what were people doing at the time. And so at the time, that typical bodybuilder diet of, you know, chicken breast and potatoes or chicken breast and rice and broccoli and these sorts of things were what, uh, what I started to eat. So I did that for a really long time. And I spent probably five years bulking up to the point where I put on, I think in total about 30 or 40 pounds uh, of lean mass. And, and again, that took a really long time because it, uh, I didn't put on muscle uh, very easily. So in doing that, that meant that I was eating a lot of excess carbohydrates. In fact, I would try to get through an entire bag of bagels in a day just to get the calories that I needed. And you can imagine how that felt. I mean, thinking back on that, just saying that right now makes my stomach ache, um, having to put that much uh, uh, processed carbohydrates in my body. But, you know, I, to a certain degree, it worked. Um, I was able to put muscle on. I felt like garbage a lot, but I didn't realize it. I just thought that was normal. I thought brain fog and, you know, later on getting anxiety and those sorts of things that that was just kind of uh, par for the course. But, um, you know, by the time I got into the later stages of competing and I was about uh, a few weeks out, I was on this very, very strict diet. And uh, I, I sat on the couch after coming home from work one day and my wife looked at me, she goes, what's wrong? Something looks wrong. And I just started bawling sobbing. Like I couldn't uncontrollably to the point where my shoulders are shaking, my tears are streaming down my face. And she just was terrified and looks at me and said, what is wrong? I'm like, I don't know. I had no idea what was happening. And I believe at that point that I was eating a certain way that just was not congruent with what my body needed. I'd gotten so lean that I had completely thrown my hormones out of whack and she just intuitively looked at me and said, here, eat this. And she shoved a bunch of food in my face. And I just said, I can't because I'm, you know, I'm on my diet. So um, she was pretty forceful, which is not typical for her. Uh, but she said, you eat this right now. And so I started eating and immediately the waterworks turn off. I start feeling better. And I increased my calories by, I think it was about a thousand calories, 1200 calories uh, over the next two weeks. As I and I just continued to get leaner and leaner and leaner, and I felt better. And that was kind of the first indicator for me that um, the way I was eating to get lean and this whole bodybuilding lifestyle might not be the best thing for long term. So fast forward a few years, and I, um, you know, I was in health and fitness, and I would eat that way, but then I'd get sick of eating that way. I mean, I don't know who in their right mind wants to eat a chicken breast and rice and broccoli for the rest of their life. I mean, again, it makes me sick to my stomach to just think about it. So like most people, I started to put on body fat. And because I have a very small frame, uh, nobody really noticed because you can hide a lot when you have a small frame. 
and you're wearing a suit every day. And so people uh, would look at me and say, oh, you, you look good. You look fit. Uh, but, you know, underneath it all, I knew I was carrying uh, this extra body fat and I felt like garbage. So I can't remember where it started, but uh, you and I started to have some conversations around this whole low carb, uh, high fat thing. And you were getting into that. And, and I said, well, tell me, tell me more about this. And so uh, from those conversations, I started to go more low carbohydrate. And then eventually shifted over to eating keto. And I would say for the better part of about two, two and a half years, went on a ketogenic diet. And I think I ended up dropping uh, about 20 to 25 pounds of body fat, which when I tell people that now, they said, there's no way you have that um, amount of body fat to lose. But if you look at the pictures, uh, you can see not only that I did I lose that 20, 25 pounds of body fat. But there was a significant change hormonally. Like when, when you look at somebody who doesn't have good hormonal balance, you just notice certain things. The skin sags a certain way. Um, you know, you look at my chest and I, uh, my, my chest relative to my body is, is relatively broad, but, I, but my nipple size was larger. And not like I was developing the uh, gynomastia or anything, but it just like I didn't look healthy. And as I got leaner and everything got tighter, uh, the indications that the hormones were getting back into play uh, or in, into a better place were there. Uh, I felt great. Now, I can't say that ketogenic was the thing that I thought, okay, I can do this always for the rest of my life. And so I have uh, pulled back and, and have gone more towards a low-carbohydrate lifestyle since then. Uh, but it, it it's been a fascinating journey to go on. And Honestly, Casey, uh, I, I think it was a combination of the conversations that you and I had about low carb, but also just a sense of desperation. I felt like garbage. I wasn't sleeping good. I wasn't, you know, I was putting on more body fat. And I finally said to myself, okay, I've tried just about everything that I can imagine having been in the health and fitness industry for so long. Uh, but the one thing I've never tried is this whole high fat thing. And so I did it and started to notice uh, massive, massive results. Wow, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing that story. When I look at you and the things that have evolved in your diet, I definitely see you as somebody who can be a moderator. You can live in the low carbohydrate space without being like crazy low and crazy strict. And you can do okay moderating those things, enjoying a dessert every now and again, or you know, going off of not just eating all meat all the time. I, with me, I couldn't do that. I had to be really, mm. really strict. And I think back on some of those sessions that you and I kind of did together, and I, I got certified as a nutrition coach in 2017, and I think that's about when we started. And I had yeah. been aware that fat was good and you should put more of it in the diet and that you could drop carbohydrates pretty low, but my nutrition certification really doubled down on the standard advice that I was supposed to tell people. Whole grains with every meal, fruits yeah. and vegetables, every meal, limit your fat, eat lean protein, eat the rainbow, eat until you're 80% full write in your food journal. And, and so I, again, I doubled down on that and coached everybody in that way. I don't know if you even remember, do you remember the really expensive like software program that I bought through that company that I could oh, yeah. sign people up and they would yeah. get that curriculum mm -hmm. and you were part yep. of it and you did it. I just, nobody, nobody was ever getting any good results. I didn't know like what to do. It was, it was easy because people kept coming back, failing the advice and you always had something to coach them on something emotional. You didn't journal, you didn't consider yeah. your feelings yeah. or how full you were. And so it was really amazing when we started to get more into the low carbohydrate and ketogenic space that was like, oh wow, this is working for a lot of people. 
Now, I, I would have said the same thing about you then, that, that if I looked at you, and I remember distinctly looking at you thinking, like, he's got no weight to lose. But I remember some of those early coaching sessions, you were pretty uncomfortable with how you were feeling. I think you had digestive yeah. issues. I think yep. skin wasn't great. I do remember mm -hmm. issues with sleep and brain fog. Am yep. I remembering all of that correctly? Yeah, yeah, totally. Okay. Uh -huh. yeah. 100%, all of those things. And, and what I, uh, one of the things I didn't realize is that probably in my mid thirties to early forties, uh, I started to get this, the, this sense of anxiety that would build up. And I think there was, you know, anxiety in my mind is something, it, it's a state that you go through, uh, if, for a couple of different reasons. One, your biochemistry might be off. You might be eating poorly. And so you're constantly putting stuff in that's going to uh, trigger anxiety, or you just don't have the skills uh, currently to deal with the stresses of life. And I think mine was probably a combination of those things. As I got more skilled in business and I was more calm and, uh, and not worry about stuff. Um, but there was a point where my business acumen had reached a certain level where work didn't bother me. Uh, it wasn't stressing me out significantly. Uh, my personal life wasn't, my family life. And so I, when I would start to get these feelings of anxiety that wouldn't go away, and started to get this, uh, you know, these feelings of impending doom. And I remember one time having a an anxiety or a panic attack when I was on a business trip one uh, to Denver, Colorado. And I could trace it back and say, okay, I was thinking a little bit too far in the future and worried about being late to this lecture. Uh, so there was a thought process there, but that's not always what what's going on. Uh, so there's there's got to be something deeper. And as I played with my nutrition and started journaling more, uh, linking my emotion to what I was eating and how I was living, I, I realized that a great deal of the anxiety that I would feel was uh, related to the food that I was putting in my body. And that was the only time that I could remember in my entire life having this anxiety or panic attack uh, feeling. And uh, I, I know other people deal with that on an ongoing basis. And so I'm not a doctor. I'm not here to diagnose it. But what I can say is that the only times that I remember having experiences where I would feel anxiety bubbling up like that were if I was eating more of a high carbohydrate diet and I was uh, especially having more sugar in, uh, less protein and, and less high fat. Ever since I had switched over to a low carbohydrate uh, lifestyle, uh, I just, I, I haven't felt any of that. I mean, that has completely gone away. That's amazing. Yeah. Mine was definitely that type of anxiety and it was definitely sugar for me that I had to just get out and remove once and for all. Okay. So, so here we are, you have followed a particular diet for overall health and body composition. This is great. Yep. You yep. hired me for a few sessions. We did some coaching. You fixed all of that. I, I suck at business because my, my clients tend to fire me after a while because they're fine to go off and ride <laughs> off into the right. sunset and go climb crags with their buddies and do stupid stuff in the mountains. And, and yeah. you're kind of done. You kind of get fixed and you can relax a little bit. You can moderate a little bit. You can, you can be more free, but, but carry those same benefits with you, which is, which is great. Yeah. So we should end the podcast here and say, this is great. This is the best thank, thing to do. Thanks for having me. That's yep, right. we'll thank see you. you. Thank you very yeah. much. That was great. Yeah. 2022, something very interesting happened in your family's life that then ended up affecting you personally. So tell us about this particular disruption. Well, there were a few things. Which one were we talking about? So your daughter wanting to do some counseling ah, um, as the yeah, start yeah. to, okay. yeah. 
I was going to say, because we had a really weird thing at the beginning of the year where we had a guy break into our house. And so that that's kind of the story I I've been forgot. telling lately. But I forgot um, all about that. That was insane. <laughs> yeah, that was a pretty wild one. Um, so, yeah, my daughter, uh, my oldest, had been, uh, she had moved out and she was dealing some, with some... Uh, uh, some of the normal challenges, I think, that uh, all kids do as they transition out of high school and go into college. And, um, you know, during the pandemic, she was living with some roommates in a house that uh, was really small. And because we were on lockdown and she couldn't uh, really get out of the house and go anywhere else, and she was working from home at that time in a room that was... Um, probably smaller than the room you're in right now. And that was essentially her living space. She had a very small kitchen, uh, but essentially she was in that room and she would wake up, roll out of bed, uh, sit at the desk, work the eight hours, uh, you know, be done, maybe come and visit us, maybe see her boyfriend. Um, and that was it. And I think uh, 2020 was really tough on a lot of people, uh, her included, because of that uh, that isolation. And so... What happened though is she started to come out of the, or we started to come out of the pandemic. She said, you know, mom, dad, I, I don't, I don't know what's going on, but I want to, I want to get some help. And I'm wondering if you can help me out with that. So I said, sure. Um, you know, I've always told my kids, whatever I screw up in you, I will pay to, uh, for the counseling so that you can go get it fixed later. Nice. And so she, uh, she went and saw a counselor and they diagnosed her with ADHD and I remember having the conversation. I just was in this uh, state of disbelief at first where I thought there's no way you have ADHD because this is my daughter who could sit down and tackle a book in an entire afternoon. You know, great focus. The ability to just, uh, when she was younger, would work on a project, would work on building something and could do that for hours and hours at a time. But what we didn't realize is there were a lot of other symptoms that were there that we had no idea were typical symptoms. Uh, had a really hard time keeping her room clean. Had a difficult time organizing things. Was constantly late to uh, things. Would would forget um, uh, often and would get distracted. Uh, had a more difficult time understanding the... Uh, and having emotional awareness in social situations. And so there were several things that looking back now, my wife and I talk about and we think, wow, if we would have been educated, we could have picked up on this earlier. But because she was a very good student for the majority of her growing up and she could focus for a really long time, uh, we had no idea. This would have been, been nothing that had uh, entered my mind. So she says, well, here's a couple of books uh, that I'm reading. And if you want to know more about it, read this. So I will do whatever I can to help support my kids. And I started reading one of the books. And then, you know, a couple of weeks goes by and she says, oh, actually, my counselor said this is a better book. Why don't you read this one? So I picked that book up and it was called ADHD 2.0. I got about a quarter of the way through it and I thought, oh, my gosh, how did we miss this? This is 100% what my daughter has. I Now I understand. I thought that ADHD was just the hyperactive bouncing off the wall. And yet it's not. It's It really is a tell of two cities, uh, to coin uh, Dickens, where you are hyper-focused and you can have this hyper-focus for a really long period of time. And at other times, you can't focus at all and you're bouncing all over the place. And so the hyperactivity is what happens inside of the brain and it isn't always manifest in the behaviors that the uh, individual with ADHD has. So I get about halfway through this book and I think, wait a minute, 
this sounds like me. I get about three quarters of the way through this book and they start talking about what ADHD looks like and how it manifests in school. And I think this is 100% me. So I'm curious and I schedule an appointment with a counselor. I do the online tests and assessments that you have to do before going in. And I go sit down and talk to the counselor and uh, she says, yes, 100%, you have ADHD. And because of the genetic factors here, this is probably where your daughter got it from. Uh, ADHD is essentially just that your brain is wired different. There are what are called neurotypical brains and there are neurodivergent brains. Uh, we have neurodivergent brains. Uh, there is a toggle switch in everybody's brain that regulates the ability to focus and the uh, what they call the default setting. So the default setting is that uh, state of mind that we get into maybe when we're in the shower or if we're driving home at the end of a day and we're not really thinking about the drive home, we just get home. So we go into this default stage where life becomes very creative, we're very open, but we're not very focused on anything. The focus stage is where we become hyper-focused. Now, all human beings have this ability, but a neurotypical brain the switch that regulates between those two is this beautiful dimmer switch that as one side goes up, the focus side goes up, then the uh, default side goes down. People with ADHD don't have a good switch. So the way that the authors describe it is it's like having a, uh, a Ferrari engine with bicycle brakes on your brain. And so I, you know, got, again, I got through the book, went and saw a counselor. She said, absolutely. You have this. Um, what now? And I said, well, what do you mean? She said, well, do you want medication? I said, well, I'm not coming here for medication. I'm actually just curious because, um, you know, I, I, I just want to know like, what, what is it? So we talked through what my lifestyle is. And uh, at the end of it, she said, I, I just have one question for you. Can I use what you've done as an example? Because everything you're doing are the things that we tell people to do to learn how to manage ADHD. And what I uh, essentially what I had done over the years was I looked at my life and said, okay, I know there's something different about me. I know that I'm not normal. I, I couldn't classify it. I couldn't, you know, identify what that was. I just knew that I didn't think the same as other people. But I also knew that I had weaknesses that were inherent to the way that I was wired or the way that I am. And so one by one, I would look at those weaknesses and say, okay, that's a weak area of mine. How do I fix that? And I would dive headfirst into addressing whatever that weakness was. Uh, so people with ADHD, for instance, uh, they don't function well unless things are hyper-organized. And so my closet, my lifestyle, the way I eat, uh, the cleanliness of my car, everything has to be super organized because I, I don't want to think about it. Because if I don't have to think about something, then I don't get lost and distracted. And so by this, you know, uh, identifying that getting lost and distracted was something that was a problem of mine early on, I said, if I become hyper-organized, then I don't have to think about that. So in this conversation, uh, again, the uh, therapist says, well, you're doing the strategies. Do you want some medication? I said, I'd rather not. And it's not that I don't believe in medication and that I don't believe in uh, you know, alternatives for mental health, 
But if I've made it to 46 and I'm a relatively functioning human being in life, um, and you, you may argue with me. On relatively that is a keyword there. Thank you. Yeah. Um, then I, then I want to, I want to see what else I can do. And so I have not taken medication, uh, up to this point and have just continued with lifestyle and nutrition to test out how, how I feel. And now knowing that I have ADHD and knowing what it is, I'm not trying to fix it because you can't, I mean, that's like saying that, uh, you're going to fix a Porsche, uh, and turn it into a, uh, I don't know, a Yugo or something like it is what it is. A Porsche is fast and it uh, doesn't always get great gas mileage, but if you try to change it to get better gas mileage, then it's not a Porsche anymore. And so once I realized, uh, through this uh, discovery process that I had ADHD, I stopped trying to change it. And I just started to say, okay, this is, uh, I need to get into a place of acceptance. And then once I'm into a place of acceptance, now, how do I manage it? And how do I, uh, how do I step into a different space with it? Hmm. Wow. That was so well explained. Thank you so much for explaining what goes on in an ADHD brain. I've got a few more questions about ADHD before we continue with your story. Do you know why we moved away from calling it ADD? We added the H. Well, so there was a progression in the diagnosis. And in fact, if you read, um, the authors who wrote ADHD 2.0, they, they had written it in uh, their original book and, and were really kind of the pioneers in describing what AD, ADD at the time and now ADHD is. Uh, the hyperactivity piece was uh, brought into it because of how the brain functions. And they thought that ADD and ADHD were two separate things. And then, you know, eventually the community uh, the, in, you know, psychiatry and psychology just, uh, said, well, no, this is what the diagnosis is. Now there are doctors out there. Uh, there's one in particular, I can't remember off the top of my head what his name is, but, uh, several people t- say that there are about four different types of ADHD. This other doctor says that he's narrowed it down to, uh, 28 different types, uh, which, you know, might be helpful to know. Uh, he sells blood work that uh, can help you to identify and, you know, the, all these tests and I don't know how much it was, several hundred dollars and more than I cared to pay money for, uh, to learn about myself. Uh, cause I just, I like to do it more of an observational way, but yeah, the hyperactivity tends to be the fact that the brain is just constantly going. Uh, it, my wife and I were talking one day and after, you know, getting the diagnosis and she's learning more about it, and I just explained to her how my brain works throughout the day and how I think through things and how I have to process. And she looked at me, she said, I'm tired just from listening to how your brain works. I can't imagine living inside of your head. And I said, well, now you understand at times why I get so frustrated with myself because I don't want to live inside of my head sometimes like it's some, some people may have to do one or two steps to get something done where I have to do 10 to 15 just because my brain doesn't process the same way. Wow. Okay. So we learned from Dr. Angela Stanton that a certain percentage of the population has migraine brain and their brains are different. And 
we could we could still take that person and put them in our normal kind of hunter gatherer um, settings that we evolved through, and they would probably never get migraine. They would be more sensitive to yep. light and smell, maybe emotion, and that would be useful. And that was why that was allowed to continue to progress up until this day. And 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 now with all the stimulation that we have, and screens, and diets have changed, and you know we're inside a lot. We're not getting sunshine. We're not getting you know enough salt in our food or nutrients from the soils. Now that's having a reaction with that brain that is causing migraines. Is it a similar right. thing with an ADHD brain? For sure. When you think about uh, people with an ADHD brain, oftentimes you'll find people who have ADHD, uh, they go one of two directions. You know, just like the condition itself is very dichotomistic. Um, you are, you know, you're blunt, but you're kind. You're direct, but you are sensitive. Um, I mean, it's it's both things, right? And so people that have ADHD either end up uh, completely dysfunctional and drug addicts, or they go into more leadership type positions and roles because the things that allow you to be extremely successful in a leadership role are the things that ADHD leans into. For instance, I have the ability to shift and switch my focus very quickly. And so I can do so in a very calm way and it doesn't stress me out. I can go from one problem to the next and there's no, uh, there's not excess stomach acid, right? There's no excessive oxidative stress happening inside of my brain. Uh, I can just change focus relatively quickly. And so that's lended to uh, being able to work in high stress situations uh, very well. The other thing is that people with ADHD have a tendency to be more intuitive and insightful uh, where they can see through the minutiae and they can get to the heart of a problem a lot quicker. Now, for many people with ADHD, that's really challenging because they become very empathic and they get overwhelmed with their emotions. That's why they say that uh, one of the ch biggest challenges for people with ADHD is emotional regulation. So uh, if you are not, uh, if you don't have the development of your brakes on this, uh, you know, I, I call it a Porsche brain because I'm a big Porsche fan. Uh, the Porsche brain with the bicycle brakes, if you haven't developed your brakes and your ability to regulate your emotions, then uh, that can overtake you and will lead you into significant dysfunction. And again, many people who have ADHD tend to then develop addictive personalities or excuse me, addictive behaviors because of the nature of the way that the brain is wired. Now, when you think about the how the how our society is structured we have trained each other and we've trained ourselves to have less focus overall uh, the fact that i can get on my phone and a tiktok typically i think the average tiktok is about eight to nine seconds um, i can scroll through social media and you know move through and, and gather so much information in just almost no time and so our overall society is set up to move much quicker and to uh, move our direction in multiple places over a very short period of time. Now, if you took somebody with ADHD uh, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, they'd probably not be diagnosed with it. Uh, they would have it, but they probably would not be diagnosed because if they were a hunter, if they were a gatherer, if they were a farmer, uh, a merchant, you, you wouldn't have been able to identify it. But in our society, now you do. Uh, in fact, the authors of ADHD 2.0 talk about that many people have what's called VAST. And I can't remember exactly what it stands for, but it's essentially uh, 
our attention span uh, goes down significantly because of the lifestyle we live. And so there are certain things that I have to do and put boundaries and barriers on in my life in order to manage my uh, the negative side effects of ADHD that uh, other people might be okay with, but I just, I, I can't do. Yeah. Well, you hear the, the, you know, the argument all the time that like, yeah, of course we're diagnosing this more, especially in children because we're, you know, feeding them again, terrible diets and sticking them in hard yep. chairs and teaching them yep. about stuff they don't really care about. From what I've learned about ADHD, it sounds like what, what you said, like, as long as you're passionate about something, as long like your daughter, like she could sit down and read an entire book, but it has to be something that she's really focused on and, and, passionate about if you give her yep. something else that's when you know the, the mind wandering happens and she's not able to focus and i contrast yeah. that kind of a setup and the education setup that we have here with what i've learned about the amish where it's like they they have school they offer school and you can go to class but like the kid who doesn't care about math can just like leave and go like play in the stream or he can go help dad build a, a, a barn or something and he's going to yep. grow up to be a barn builder that's what he's interested in so it's interesting to right. kind of contrast those and you you wonder you know, how, how this has all changed because of those lifestyle factors that you mentioned. Well, yeah. And we've become so much more sedentary. And one of the things that I've done, um, you know, over the past probably two years, and then this year learning more about, uh, the ADHD and how it affects me is I, I feel much better as I'm more active. Uh, you know, I, I have at times counted my step count for long periods of times, and I look back in uh, relation to how it affects my mood and, and my productivity. And if I'm 10, 12, 15, 20,000 steps a day, I'm just much more focused. I'm much more um, happy. You know, my brain is, is better. And that's actually one of the findings that a lot of the research is, is showing is that people who are the most active, they tend to be the ones that manage ADHD and the, the, the negative side effects of ADHD much better. ADHD becomes their superpower if they're uh, super active. The other thing I found was that as I was more active, I got leaner. And there's a range uh, that I am more optimal. If I'm above 10% body fat, I don't have the same focus. And this you know, harkens back to the conversations that you and I had uh, years ago. I was maybe 15 to 17%. Um, Somewhere in there, I think I got as 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 much as uh, you know in my twenties, uh, maybe maybe mid twenties. I think at a certain point, but when I was in my mid twenties to maybe high teens, uh, I felt horrible. It wasn't just the uh, digestive issues, which I do think play into my overall brain health, uh, but it was kind of this uh, cyclical thing, right? I had gut issues, which was affecting my brain health, uh, which was you know leading to poor mood bad focus. But it, what I found is as I get leaner, the leaner I am, the more uh, dynamic I feel, the more focused I am and the, the better my brain is. Yeah. I want to go back to something you said about activity and getting those steps. I am willing to bet that there's a huge difference whether you get those 15,000 steps outside or whether you get those 15,000 steps on a treadmill indoors. I'm guessing those are two completely, completely different things. Yeah, they are for a couple of reasons. You know, I if I'm outside, like for instance, last night, uh, we finished up dinner with the family and um, I ate something yesterday. Uh, I'm not quite sure what it, what uh, bothered me, but something bothered my stomach. 
And so when that happens, I'll typically go on a walk. And so we finished, uh, we finished dinner and I got the family to go on a walk around the block with me. And, and, uh, that was great. And then we were waiting on, uh, my son and his girlfriend to come back from going out to dinner with her family so that we could have, uh, our game night. And my stomach just still was off, which is not normal for me. So I just said, Hey, I'm going to go out for a walk. And I went out for a good 45, you know, 50 minute walk. And there's something about being outside, especially, uh, you know, right now where everybody's getting sick and it's cold outside that, that walking and you, you know where we live. I mean, we've got a ton of hills by us. And so getting out and walking, keeping my mouth closed, breathing through my nose, getting that cold air, uh, just makes such a big difference in how I feel. I came back home and my stomach issue was, uh, was not there. Uh, I didn't feel upset in my stomach. I, uh, you know, felt great. My mind was more focused. I, uh, I can get my steps inside. I can get my steps on the treadmill and that's okay. But the fresh air, uh, you know, whether it's summertime in the, in the warm air or the cold air outside, it just, it makes all the difference in the world. And oftentimes I'll try to get it, uh, in nature where I'll go on a hike or I'll even just go for a walk, uh, at, in a, you know, park or, or somewhere that's close by, uh, because there's just a different feeling there. And I think, uh, people who get out in nature on a regular basis know what I'm talking about, but there's a calmness in nature. It's like everything in nature is obeying the laws of nature. And so when you go out there and you start to have this anxiety and this worry or this depression or, you know, any, any type of negative mental health side effect, it starts to melt away because your, your body and your brain just say, yeah, the hell with that. We don't, we're just, we're in line. We're, we're part of nature too. We're part of this universe. And so it starts to get in line with what, uh, what the trees and the rocks and the streams and everything else are doing. So awesome. I love that. One of my favorite books to this day, it's a, basically a decade old, is called Go Wild. And they describe the difference between like plod, mm. plod, 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 running on a treadmill. You've got CNN on showing you all yep. the worst breaking news that's happening around the world versus right. doing a trail run. And just the, sen- the taking in all of the sensory stuff that you're describing, undulating terrain and rocks and slick rocks and all these things, the temperature, the light, adjusting your body, like, like they make this point so eloquently and they describe it and it, it, it seems so much more engaging, but they also say like, we have computers that can beat us in chess. Your brain yeah. is not for facts and playing games and remembering things. Your brain is for movement. And if you think about the complexity mm. of even doing something like walking through a door, walking downstairs, throwing a ball, like those are so crazy complex. We don't even give them a second thought. And so I'm sure getting out of nature, like you're describing is so healing and beneficial for you. Very different than if you were getting that movement in inside. Um, going back to diet. So, so here you are again, you, you've been using diet for a long time now to help you with your body composition. Some of those things that you were dealing with before the brain fog, the gut issues, you know, again, the body composition, body fat loss, all that stuff. Now you have a different reason to start to look at a ketogenic diet again, a little bit more closely. So can you tell us a little bit about what you have learned about that recently with this journey and what things you've changed and what you've noticed? Yeah. So, um, I think well, really you sparked this with one of your episodes and I can't remember who it was, but you had a, you had somebody on, uh, that talked about mental health, uh, relative to a, uh, 
uh, low-fat or a ketogenic carnivorous diet. Uh, And then it was almost like the next week, Andrew Huberman had released an episode with a former guest of yours where they were talking about, uh, you know, carnivore diet, keto diet to uh, help or to heal many uh, mental illness issues, which I believe mental illness needs to be treated uh, very much or, or any mental condition, right? ADHD is a condition of the brain. I don't think it's a mental illness um, from what I understand and the way I uh, have lived it, but it is a condition of the brain and it needs to be managed appropriately. And I believe whether you have a condition of the brain or whether you have a mental illness, uh, there are so many things that are tied into how you're living your life and the food that you're putting into it. You think about the the way that we've treated in allopathic medicine, any type of mental illness, uh, we've done it through pills, through creams, through things that just uh, we're, we're putting into our body that are... Uh, they might be beneficial. They may change one thing or another, but it's not necessarily the natural way that the body was designed to work. And again, I'm not opposed to uh, allopathic medicine uh, and I'm not opposed to the, you know, our, our great medications that have been uh, created. I think that there are a lot of things that have saved a lot of people's lives, but I believe that there's a foundational piece that human beings were designed to live around, foundational principles. And so uh, when you had, um, you know, this uh, woman on that was talking about uh, health and uh, mental health and and nutrition, I I said, God, I wonder, it's been a while since I've actually done full keto. I've done low carb for so long, but what would that do to my brain? Because I didn't I kind of kept track of that when I was doing it before, but I was more interested in how I felt. So emotions, energy, um, you know, body composition, those types of things. So I did what I have done for years and I set up an experiment and I said, okay, I know it's an N of one, but you know, that's my life is an N of one. And so I just said that allows me to control the variables in a way that uh, works for me. Uh, I try to get rid of dogma as often as possible. It's been a major passion of mine over the past probably 15, 20 years is to get rid of any dogmatic belief that I have about anything and, and just test it. And so I said, okay, well, what if I went deep into a keto carnivorous type diet? How would that affect my brain? And relative to the typical symptoms of ADHD, would I be able to focus? Would I be able to shift faster? Would I be able to uh, control more of if I want a day of focus, can I control my focus more? Would it all of these different things, right? So uh, I pulled out my journal and wrote out what my uh, hypothesis was. And my hypothesis was essentially that a uh, ketogenic diet would have an effect on my brain. And so I, that's what I was testing, but I didn't know whether it was going to be extremely positive or I was pretty confident it wasn't going to be negative because I had done it before. And so I employ a combination of uh, intermittent fasting and a uh, ketogenic type diet. And so the way that I was measuring was uh, I would measure my ketones through, um, you know, a blood stick. Um, There are different ways to measure ketones. But what I found before when I was measuring is that, uh, you know, peeing on the strips gave you uh, kind of a way of seeing, but it's not the most effective. And so I bought a ketone blood sugar monitor and uh, I off and on, I'll use that as a way to, to determine how I'm feeling or whether or not I'm, I'm in ketosis. And so I started measuring my ketones as I went into a uh, deeper low carb uh, carnivorous type diet. 
and just uh, kept track of several things. So my mental clarity, how was I sleeping? Uh, you know, was I resistant to uh, the sickness that's around me, everybody getting colds and flus and whatnot? And it's been amazing as I've gone back to eating more carnivorous and ketogenic to see what the positive effects were on my uh, overall health and my mood. I think one of the first things that I noticed is I would wake up in the morning. And again, this is this is me going from low carbohydrate to very ketogenic carnivorous. I wake up in the morning with a lot more energy and a lot more vitality. You know, and it, there's, I mean, you think about how big the uh, uh, hormone replacement, uh, you know, industry is nowadays to get men more testosterone so that they have... Uh, more energy and they, you know, how many, how many millions and hundreds of millions of dollars are people spending on pills to get an erection, um, you know, to boost their testosterone, to do all these different types of things. And I, I don't know, I just don't think you need it because I wake up in the morning and I feel phenomenal, ready to go. Uh, so that was one of the first things that I noticed is just my overall energy, my mental energy was, was a lot better. My clarity was better. Uh, there were days where I'd be sitting at my desk or I'd be driving in the car and I would become aware of the fact that I was smiling. And I'm a, I'm one of those guys where I don't know what they, what they call it for guys. Uh, but you kind of have that resting asshole face or whatever. (laughs) It works. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I just, I'm, I think I've just got a fairly bland face most of the time I, I am looking or I'm thinking. And so I don't, um, I don't know if I'm scowling or, or not, but, I, but I'm not the guy that walks around with a big smile on his face and never have been. And so uh, I remember one day where I was driving in the car and I thought, oh my gosh, I'm smiling. I just, I, I feel happy. I feel more peace. I feel more like happiness and joy right now. And that has continued. There are multiple times where I just find myself uh, with more of this sense of happiness. And so and, and granted, this is happening in January of 2023. And typically, December and January, I, I go through more of a seasonal depression uh, because we just don't see the sun as much. And we really haven't seen the sun a lot lately. And I'm out here feeling much better than I have uh, in in winter's past. So uh, anyway, it's it's been really cool to see as I've gone uh, through this process of testing it specifically for my my overall mental health and how it affects my, uh, my ADHD. This is fascinating for the listener. Steve and I did not talk about any of this before the call. You set this up about a month ago. You said you were going to do some kind of experiment around this and mental clarity and food. I had no idea you were tracking. Um, and so the questions I'm asking you, they're, they're all honest questions. I really don't know. And it's really fascinating to, to hear your experience and how, no surprise knowing you, how, how scientific you were with everything. Um, I want to go back to the ketone um, measuring device that you use. You mentioned the urine strips, and I totally agree. I think they work really great when you're first converting over because your body's going to be right. spilling ketones. It's going to come through yeah. on the urine, but over time, your body's going to make less of the ketones, and it's going to waste less. It's going to use more of, of what it's already producing. So that's why yeah. people complain, like, this is working when I first started a ketogenic diet. Now it no longer works like a month later. Um and so, so for weight loss, I don't necessarily recommend that people track their ketones. And the goal is not to just always have higher ketones. I think if you're, right. you know, point 
0.4, you're in a nice kind of fat burning state and you don't really need to worry about it. I don't, don't think you really need to track it. Mental health is totally different. And the doctor you were talking about earlier that's been on our show and on, on, um, Andrew Huberman show, uh, Dr. Chris Palmer just came out with the book brain energy. And he talks about like on, and for mental health, yes, you do want to drive ketones to, to a fairly high level. So we're talking like one to one and a half would be about the right level that you'd want to kind of keep somebody in a sweet spot. What levels were you seeing? Were you measuring pretty commonly when you were checking your blood? So I think when I started to notice a difference was around 0.8 and anywhere between 0.8 to 1.5 is where I was feeling, uh, you know, fairly optimal. And and there were days where, uh, depending on when I was, I try to test at a re- at, at the same time or at least with the same conditions every day. Uh, but there were a few times where I just had other things going on. I couldn't test. And so I would test maybe after a workout uh, or after a meal. And even if it was, you know, a, a a big steak and eggs, uh, no carbohydrates in it, I might score a little bit lower on my ketones at that point. My blood sugar might show a little bit higher. Uh, definitely showed higher after my blood sugar showed higher, my my ketones lower in my blood after a workout. Um, but anywhere between 0.8 to 1.5, I felt pretty good. And even if I'm testing post-workout and I'm at a 0.3 or 0.4, um, I felt pretty good as well. So um, I now that I'm about a month and a half into it, I find that as long as I'm anywhere between a 0.1 to a 0.3, I feel good. You know, I don't, I don't notice any of the negative side effects of, uh, that ADHD has, you know, one of the negative side effects is that as you, as we referenced earlier, people with ADHD have a harder time getting into activities that they're not interested in. It's really hard to overcome that mental inertia. Uh, And sometimes uh, doctors say even impossible. And so one of the things that people with ADHD have to do is develop a sense of curiosity so that you can overcome that inertia and become interested in something so that you can get the job done. Uh, People with ADHD typically are seen as procrastinators or are seen as people who don't fit in as projects. and, and that's not necessarily the case, but it is the case with things that they're not interested in. And so what I've found is that if I can, uh, you know, if my ketones are within that range, I can sit down and work on a project that I might not be as interested in and still accomplish it in a relatively uh, you know, reasonable amount of time. Now there's other hacks that I utilize. Um, I've got digital egg timers that I keep around at my desk. And so if I'm, uh, I use, uh, the Pomodoro technique, which is 20 minutes of work, um, on something that I'm not really fascinated about or interested in. And so I limit myself to 20 minutes. And then as soon as that 20 minutes is up, doesn't matter where I'm at, I'm done. Uh, the, what I, what I found is that will help to drive my focus more. So I just, and I say that because I want to be clear that it's not all diet, right? Diet makes a huge, huge play into what I'm doing and how I'm feeling, but I'm also utilizing other lifestyle techniques and other brain uh, management techniques that are helping me. Yeah. It's just part of the puzzle. I really appreciate that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. So you've done this, you said a month and a half, that is December of 2022 and January of 2023, December, arguably worst month to change a diet, hardest month to execute. Did you have any days where you cheated or got off of kind of whatever strictness you decided to land on for your everyday diet? Yeah, I think 
there's probably two or three in there. Um, I'm trying to think, I think my daughter's birthday, uh, there was like birthday cake. Um, and then maybe one or two other times, you know, the thing that I found, right. You referenced this on your podcast several times that with how you feel, um, when you eat the way that you eat. And then if you eat like pie or something like that, you feel horrible afterwards. And so one of the things that I found is that because I've linked the way that I eat to my emotions, to my feelings, to my energy, um, I just, I, there are times where I'm just not as tempted by food. And that's not to say that if Danielle makes, uh, you know, her famous chocolate chip cookies or her marshmallow brownies that I can't down a whole pan of those in one sitting, I, I can, and I still enjoy it and I don't feel bad about it now. Um, but yeah, there's, there's rarely times where that is something that I'm, you know, leaning towards. And so, you know, Thanksgiving, I think my plate was full of, uh, every meat that we had there, uh, the hams, the turkeys, the, uh, the dark meats, the light meats, um, you know, cooked up some bacon. Uh, there, there were just all sorts of meats on my plate and I felt great afterwards. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think I went out that morning, we were staying at our family's, uh, house up in the mountains and I, uh, did some sprints and I did my workout and, you know, I take my bands with me and do my pull-ups and, you know, I, I felt phenomenal and I wanted to wake up the next day and be able to do the same thing. So I'd say there's probably two or three days in that entire time. But, uh, you know, the holidays for me were not something where it was like, okay, I've got to go eat all of these different things. Um, although I will say is, um, uh, probably Christmas day was the one day that I had more carbohydrates. My mom, uh, from when I was a kid to now on Christmas day, she'll make her scones and, uh, these, her scones are more like a, uh, beignet, kind of more like a fry bread type of thing. And so I had a couple of those and, uh, you know, you got to do the honey butter with them, uh, because that's something that, uh, from little kid to now, that's just, that's my mom, that's Christmas. So, uh, I think I had a couple of those and, and, but outside of that, uh, you know, stayed fairly, uh, consistent with what I've been doing. She's such a sweetheart. She's awesome. You have the best parents. Um, okay. So on, on the Christmas day where you got off the diet, did you notice mentally that you were way worse? Was it harder for you to focus on certain things or was it, was it something that like, since you'd been more strict for a few weeks prior to that, it really didn't affect you all that much? Yeah, it didn't affect me a ton. And I would say in the past, it, it, would. Uh, you know, if I was eating higher carbohydrates or even just moderate carbohydrates and Christmas time rolled around and I would do the scones, uh, I'd feel like I had a gut bomb all day long and the mental clarity wasn't there. Uh, and obviously, you know, Christmas day, there's not a lot of, uh, hard mental work that needed to be done. I could just sit around and, uh, relax and enjoy life. And so I can't say that I noticed any difference, but I'm not even sure if I paid attention but I will say, uh, you know, the 26th, I wake up and I'm training and I'm doing my stuff, you know, my, my normal day-to-day, uh, you know, morning routine stays relatively consistent. And I didn't notice much of a difference that, that next day. And I think part of that uh, is that, you know, what we talk about with the metabolic flexibility, that you can do uh, some additional carbohydrates or you can eat more food at certain points in time. If you're consistent with your nutrition over a long period of time, if you're consistent with your training, you know, one day of eating more calories or one day of indulging in treats is not going to negatively affect you in the long run. You might feel like garbage, you might not sleep as well. 
I mean, I find if I, if I eat a lot of carbohydrates in one day, uh, then I sleep a lot hotter at night. Um, and I just don't feel as good during the night. I don't sleep as well, but, uh, I'll wake up the next day and I'm okay. Wow. It's just, it's amazing. You, you, you hear like different diets and different ways that, that people are doing things. And like that there is a species appropriate diet that can fix everything that you're looking for. You want to have good body composition. You want to age well, you want to have good skin, good gut, good digestion. You want to be happy and have a good mood and be clear headed. And like you found the one thing that can do all of those things with so few drawbacks that it's something that you could reasonably maintain for the rest of your life. So it's just, it's fascinating. It's a fascinating story. I'm so glad you were willing to come on and talk about it with us today. What is a piece of advice you'd want to give to somebody who maybe feels like uh, maybe, maybe they can relate to your story. Maybe they're nervous about going to get checked out to see if they have ADHD. What, what, What would be your advice to that person? Yeah, I'd say the first thing is just awareness is power. And I think when you become aware of something, uh, you know, you're able to uh, have a strategy to uh, achieve and accomplish whatever it is that you want to accomplish. Um, and this is something that I teach uh, my coaching clients, but I also work with uh, when I'm, you know, lecturing or, or I'm coaching a, um, a group of leaders that lean into the discomfort of awareness. You know, if your business isn't doing well, lean into the, that discomfort, and be very real, very raw with it. Uh, for me, leaning into this idea that I had ADHD, that was very freeing. And there was something in the back of my mind that said, okay, well, now you could throw this out there and this could become an excuse or people could start to see you as the guy that talks about ADHD and maybe that's not a good thing or people could see you different. But the reality is it's not, it's like my hair. I've got curly hair, right? I mean, I could try and straighten it and I could uh, shave it off. I could do different things to hide it, but it just, it is what it is. Um, I Understanding and having that awareness and understanding all of the things, the positives and the, the negatives, I think that's, uh, that's where the true power is. So that would be the first thing is just understand that awareness is power. And then the second thing is um, be very, very cautious of dogmas. And I mean that in every sense of the word or every sense of the, uh, you know, the way that you could define that. If it's a religious dogma, spiritual dogma, uh, nutrition dogma. I mean, I got stuck for so many years and and hell, here I am, you know, a guy in health and fitness. I've trained uh, professional athletes. I've trained Olympic athletes. I've trained uh, little old ladies rehabbing from hip surgery and knee surgery And I was not fit and healthy at certain points in time. And I can trace it back to the fact that I stuck with a dogma. I stuck with this idea that there was a healthy way of eating, you know, the grains and the, all of that kind of stuff. And I stuck with it and it just didn't work. As soon as I started looking at beliefs and dogmas in my life and saying, okay, well, what, what if I didn't believe that? What if I tried something different? What would that look like? And so be aware of those dogmas, I think, is a, is a critical thing. And then test what you have. And that would be my final bit of advice is to test what you have in front of you and see if it works. You know, when you and I started working together and I started doing more of the uh, low-carb ketogenic eating, I, I found myself falling into this dogmatic approach of, okay, but I can't go above 30 grams of carbohydrates. can't go above 40 And then I realized that that was a dogma. And I said, but what if that wasn't what worked for me? 
And I found it could go as high as maybe 80 to 100 grams of carbohydrates in my diet on a day-to-day basis and still stay in ketosis. And that was, that worked for me, right? I still was producing a relatively good amount of ketones, was still healthy and still vibrant. And so instead of leaning into the dogmas, test what works, keep a journal, pick something that you want to test and say, okay, I'm going to test this on my body fat. I'm going to test this on how I, what my mental health is, and then try it. There are so many people out there that want to push a dogma on you, that want to push a product on you. Um, and I think many of them do it for good reasons. Uh, some do it just because they want to sell you a product, but I think many people do it for a good reason. But um, it doesn't matter if it doesn't work for you, it doesn't work. You know, I'm a guy that uh, I don't have a particular religion that I follow, but I believe in a lot of, uh, I, I, I study a lot of religions. I study a lot of spiritual beliefs. I don't have, I, I couldn't say that I'm a carnivore. I couldn't say that I'm ketogenic. I don't even know that I could say that I'm low carb all the time uh, because there are times where I'm not any of those things. And so I think that, um, you know, what I found is what works well for me based on testing it. And then I know, because I know my body, I know which levers I can pull and which buttons I can push to get the results that I'm looking for. Well, that is fantastic and all such wonderful advice. This has been such a fun conversation. I'm so glad we didn't do any kind of like discovery call before this and I didn't have any yeah. idea how this was going for you. I'm so excited for you and very excited to hear how this journey will continue on um, for many years. So really appreciate you and your time today. Where do you want people to go to find you to connect with you and your work? Uh, the easiest way is I'm, I'm on all social media channels. Uh, it's just Steve Cutler with an underscore at the end. So you can find me on Instagram. You can find me on Twitter. Uh, it's Steve Cutler on LinkedIn. Uh, if you want to follow our podcast, you can go to the Evolve podcast. If you, you can find us on Instagram at uh, the underscore official underscore podcast or excuse me, uh, official underscore evolve underscore podcast. We had to change it because there were a few other people that were popping up with that name. Oh, wow, funny. Uh, but you can link to it on any of my social media uh, accounts there. And uh, yeah, I'd love to connect and talk further. We do, uh, with our business, it's a little bit different where we do group coaching. And so, uh, you know, I, I screen my clients to see if they'll fit into this tribe or this group. Uh, but essentially a lot of it is how, breaking down how do you develop your own personal evolution path. It's not going to be like somebody else's. Uh, it should be unique to you. Yeah, that's fantastic. We will link to all of that in the show notes. Just such a cool story that involves a disruption and an evolution, a constant evolution of learning that will continue on. And I think it's it's really inspiring for people. And I really appreciate you being willing to go through it and be willing to be scientific about it. And thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy day to come on our show today. Really appreciate you. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. Yeah, thank you, Casey. I love your podcast. Listen to it regularly, as you know, and love when we get together over coffee and we essentially do the same thing we're doing right now. Yep. Just solving all the world's problems. It's pretty amazing. Yep. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, thanks again. It was such an honor to host you. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio.
At the close of one year and the beginning of a new year, I just wanted to make sure to thank you, the listener, for all of your support and for listening to our show. 2022 was an amazing year that saw lots of growth with the podcast, but also came with amazing results with the people that we get to work with in our business, Boundless Body. We began our business during the confusion of the 2020 pandemic and opened up in July of that year. And we've been absolutely amazed with how things have gone. It was a lot of blood, sweat, and tears and a lot of building the plane as we were flying it, but it's turned out amazing. We just absolutely love seeing our clients get amazing results. We love seeing all the great feedback and positive reviews that come through on Apple. So if you haven't already, please leave us a review there on Apple as it's the best way for the show to continue to grow and impact the lives of people all over the world. We're super excited for 2023. We already have lots of great guests and topics lined up, and we have no intention of slowing down our releases anytime soon. <laughs> also, feel free to check out our premium content, which we post on Patreon. There you will find our extended and unedited episodes, which we post on the day of recording. So you actually don't have to wait for the edited version of the podcast to release, which can sometimes be several weeks, actually. And on Patreon, you will also find the Boundless Body Radio premium podcast. This was my special project this year. I really wanted to combine all of the very best clips about one topic from our show to combine into extended episodes that take a very deep dive into a topic. I've created two separate topics as a masterclass that are three episodes each. One is all about the macronutrients and the second is all about keto and ketogenic diets. That way you can get a fantastic education from some of our amazing guests in a format that can help you zero in on the topic that you are most interested in. Something I'm very proud of and believe that we are sharing this content for a very high value. Remember that you can also book a complimentary 30-minute session with us on our website at myboundlessbody.com. And thank you again so very much for listening to Boundless Body Radio.